0: Woohoo and yeah! <laughs> it is Rare Breeds Month here at Pure Dog Talk. I am super excited. Yeah, baby, yeah! An entire month of cool interviews, yes. amazing insights, low entry breeds, rare breeds, endangered. Well, there's some you don't see every day. Preservation battles rare breed enthusiasts are fighting. fighting the work they're doing may very well apply in your own breed true. true so i hope you'll join us this is going to be a lot of fun so hey crew new year new decade let's have some new pure dog talk promos while we're at it shall we all right our patrons group continues to grow and thrive. It's like the NPR of dogdom. It's so cool. And Pure Dog Talk offers you, my loyal listeners, an opportunity to get in on the fun. Yahoo! Pure Dog Talk patrons are invited to join a closed Facebook chat group just for you. And I promise you, no drama mamas, what, what, what? no keyboard warriors, just fabulous, supportive Pure Dog Talk fans. That's it. Each month, I pick a photo submitted by our patrons group to be the cover image on the Facebook page. You guys have seen it. And anybody with a quick question gets immediate feedback from moi personally, as well as input from the array of patron group members. Pretty fun. The patrons group also gets first dibs on podcast topic suggestions. So if you have something you want to hear about, that's a good way to do it. And, to celebrate the new year, I'm adding a whole new technological challenge to my life. Oh my god. I will be hosting Facebook Live discussions for patrons only on the final Monday of each month from 6 to 7 p.m. Pacific time zone. Yeah, baby, yeah! Y'all join us from wherever you are, but that's when they'll be. Just a few of our planned topics of conversation include advertising on a shoestring budget. (laughs) Yeah, trust me, we can talk about that. Campaigning a special just for runner handlers. Problem solving the stack. Tricks of the trade for grooming, like what products do I like or anybody else like. Open mic Q&As, all that kind of stuff. What you guys need to know is that the generosity of Pure Dog Talk's patrons is literally what keeps the MP3s running here. The money is set aside exclusively for overhead and operational expenses. That's it. Now, I'm incredibly grateful to our corporate sponsors. You have no idea. They have the dedication to purebred dogs and the resources to ensure that Pure Dog Talk remains a powerful voice for purebred dogs, that you guys, y'all believed in this mission, And you've supported it from the beginning. You are the heart and soul of my crusade to provide all purebred dog lovers a constantly growing, challenging, treasure trove of knowledge in a 21st century format. Like a real So, just click the Be My Patron on Podbean button on the website. It's quick, it's easy, it's secure. And I hope to see all of you on the next... Facebook Live chat. Welcome to Pure Dog Talk. I am your host, Laura Reeves, and I am very excited. We are going to kick off Rare Breeds Month at Pure Dog Talk with this fabulous panel discussion. And I have with me Jenny Chin, Anna Wallace, and Ian Lynch. And these folks are going to talk about rare breeds, why they picked their rare breeds and the preservation breeding that goes into saving breeds that in many cases have lower registration numbers than giant pandas. So I am really excited to talk to all of you guys. Welcome.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Excellent. God, you guys are good. So the way we're going to do this, everybody, we're going to do a little 411. So we're going to start with Jenny and then Anna and then Ian. We're going to give a little bit of, you guys are podcast listeners, you know how this works. So give us this 411, how you got involved in purebred dogs at all, and what brought you sort of to your current breeds. So go for it, Jenny. Take it away.
2: Hi, I'm Jenny Chen. I have Greater Swiss Mountain Dogs in Lao Chen. I got into purebred dogs because I wanted something rare, something a little bit different when I started grad school. So being an outlier myself, I couldn't have something mainstream. I did a lot of surveys and quizzes, and I landed upon the Greater Swiss Mountain Dog. It's my first purebred
0: dog, and the Lauchin follows shortly after. Awesome. Very cool. Anna?
1: My name is Anna Wallace, and my first purebred dog was actually a Norwegian elk hound that I got in grade school. Oh, my gosh. And we were kids growing up in an oil family living in Norway, which is how we ended up with a Norwegian elk hound and that dog pretty much turned me into dog crazy Hmm. and basically i had a lot of freedom as long as that dog was with me right and so with that that dog and i went into town and saw a lot of movies together (laughs) because as long as the dog was with me my mom didn't care where i was then i ended up over here in the u.s went to college Moved out of the dorm as soon as I possibly could and ended up with a Bernese Mountain Dog. From there, I picked up a rescue bearded collie. And I think with that, it just kind of bounced me into the rarer breeds and started with a greater Swiss because I decided I didn't like so much hair. And greater Swiss now, I've had them for like 25 years. Picked up uh, Eltley Booker's a little over 10 years ago with a full interest in helping keep the Antley Booker from going extinct. Right. And then after that, met a friend and ended up with an Icelandic sheepdog. And then my most recent addition came from
0: Jenny, and I have a loucher. So Well, I have to tell you guys, having borrowed a lauchan that I showed for a while, I am completely putting a gold star next to you. You get gold stars. They're fabulous dogs. (laughs) They're a cool breed. They are. They're awesome. And listeners will remember the podcast that I did with Alexia on them. And I just love everything about Laotian. So, Ian,
3: go for it. Take it away. My parents are Irish immigrants, and they both never had a dog. So then I saw Lady and the Tramp as a child, and I needed an American Cocker Spaniel. (laughs) So we got our first dog followed by a miniature poodle, an English Springer Spaniel, and then another American Cocker as I grew up. I did obedience with all of them and agility with my miniature poodle. And when I was a kid and to this day, I can never get enough dog information. So my mom would take me to the library every week after swimming lessons, and I would take out as many books as they would allow. You know, the next week I would repeat that until I read the whole entire branch's supply, and then my mom <laughs> would take me to another library, and we would repeat the process. I used to also save up all my money as a kid because we used to have this magazine here in Canada called the Dogs in Canada Annual, which was like a puppy buyer guide. And I Mm -hmm. would read this magazine for a full year. I would bring it to the beach with me. You name it. I memorized those manuals from cover to cover. And they were always in shreds by the time November came around and I could get the next year's edition. (laughs) So then cut to me as an adult. I got a part-time job doing social media for the Canadian Kennel Club. And it was supposed to be a six-week contract. And I've been there for five years now. I'm a influencer and a blogger with the CKC. Their blog is called The Dish. And my other daytime job is out in a radio and television host. I currently own a standard poodle and a little dandy Dinmont Terrier. I love it. So, Ian, I have to tell
0: you that you are on this interview because of one of the articles that I read that you wrote for CKC, and I completely hijacked your concept, which is how we got to this podcast. <laughs>
3: No, I appreciate that.
0: <laughs> All right. So we're going to stay in order here. Jenny, talk to us about that transition Greater Swiss Mountain Dogs and then adding Laotian. And what was that trigger for you?
2: So I do a lot of working activities with my Greater Swiss Mountain Dogs. My first one had about, I think it's 26 titles. I lost count at some point oh my in time. God. <laughs>
3: That's crazy. Amazing.
2: He, he did a lot of things. He was the first to do water rescue. He did lure coursing at the time before we could actually get titled for it. He just did it for fun. So he was the first for a lot of things. He was also my very first dog. So trying to go from like very first dog, that's one of those big working breeds in grad school and everyone saying she doesn't need a dog. She, at the time, was young and single, doesn't need a dog, turned into a dog with 26 titles. We happen to be at an obedience seminar because, you know, that's what you do with Greater Smith Mountain Dog is competitive obedience. Sure. And I saw this
1: little dog
2: and, and, you know, I almost got a different small dog, but I saw this little dog with a shaved butt and I was like, well, that is the weirdest looking thing. Well, turns out this little dog, until Pete, has 65 titles at four years old. And I thought, oh my God, <laughs> I need one of those. So I can qualify at these different events I'm doing without really worrying about it. Because training a louchin and training a greater swiss to do competitive obedience is completely different. Very different, yes. (laughs) And so, you know, I talked to the owner, it was Barbara Cecil, which had it for a while. She called me the next week and said, well, my breeder has two litters on the ground. You can have your pick. And I thought, okay. (laughs) (laughs) They're rare. They're non-shedding. They have very, very few health problems. They come out of the womb doing, you know, UDX exercises. I'm like, this sounds pretty perfect
0: absolutely love come out of the womb doing UDX exercises. I think that is hysterical. (laughs) It's true. Everyone thinks I'm a great trainer. (laughs) I just think they're cute, and they have hair that you get to shave half of it off. I'm, like, totally in favor of this.
2: Yeah, I mean, they are really a wonderful breed. It's really hard to find anything a disadvantage about that breed. It is just really fun, non-shedding, healthy. My first one is still alive today, so... You know, that's a testament to the breed.
0: And that was the thing that Alexia said that blew me away. They live to like 15 or 17. They never die. Well,
2: yeah, that's pretty much true. <laughs> you know, there is one that doesn't live in the U.S. She posted, I think the dog just turned 19 not too long ago.
0: Wow. Wow. That is crazy. Okay, so Anna. Yes. Adding Entley Booker, So you already had Swissies that are not going to be a high entry breed or a really well-known breed. But now you're going to add an Entley Booker, which is kind of like a Swissie, you cut it off at the knees, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> and what now- was the <laughs> <laughs> What was the impetus for that? Because my understanding is that the Entleys are more of a droving dog than the Swissies are more of a carting dog. Is that correct?
1: Yes, the Entley Bookers are very much a herding dog. You know, it was really just along the lines of that really looks cool. I really like them. And so, you know, I started pursuing it and some wonderful breeder took pity on me finally and sold me a dog.
0: And so this is a good segue and we'll do a little bit more of this with everybody, but talk about the challenges of acquiring a rare breed, a hard to come by breed, a threatened breed, a breed that is more rare than a giant panda. You don't just put your hand out on a street corner.
1: Right. And of course, this was still, you know, 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. Yes, people had websites, but really we're talking a lot of breeders that have little to no knowledge of how to make a website. Mm -hmm. And we're still in the aspects of, will they answer their email or do you have to call them? And if you call them, will they talk to you? And I know it helped that I came from another breed. And, you know, a Swiss breed at that. So I know that that did help. But you're still talking about waiting until you find a breeder that will talk to you, find a breeder that has puppies, and find a breeder that's willing to take a chance on the person that says, you know, hey, I think I really want one. So it's not easy to break through that little circle, you know. Right. And as rare breed. Breeders, I mean, we are absolutely protective of these dogs. So we have that aspect of, well, we can't keep them all. We do have to place some of these puppies, but we then want to make sure they go into the right homes. And, you know, can they benefit the breed in the long run? Can we do more than just a pet? Although pets are very important because pets have become the ambassadors that the public sees. Yes. So pets are important. But we also don't want to lose too much of our breeding pool and our gene pool to dogs that are going to ultimately end up neutered. So there's a balance there. And I know that's one of the reasons it's hard to break into it. Mm -hmm. I actually broke in with a male because it's always easier to get a boy.
0: Always. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I would say to anyone, I mean, I come from a background of rare breeds, right? Like I grew up in clumber spaniels. And our first clumber spaniel was an 18-month-old male that was, you know, we managed to get him finished, but he wasn't anybody's idea of the next great second coming of Christ, right? (laughs) And I think it's important to understand when you're talking about a tiny gene pool, a tiny number, that it's important that we, as the general public, people who want to purchase these dogs, we want you to come and support the breed with the understanding that it's probably going to take a year or so to get you a dog, and you're probably not going to start off with our best in show winning bitch. It's just not going to happen. So, finding that balance, right, I think is super important. I think you're right about that for sure, Anna.
1: I actually ended up with my first Entley Booker female by paying attention and answering a Craigslist ad.
0: Interesting.
1: And managed to bring in a Craigslist dog that. Basically, they had purchased and it was way more than they had anticipated. Mm -hmm. And so they had a full registration female looking for a good home. And I ended up paying double what they asked just so they'd ship her to me. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, they had a small price tag on her because at that point they were just wanting her to go away. Mm -hmm. And at that point... You know, I said, absolutely, I will happily pay that and I'll pay the shipping for you to send her to me. And, you know, they'd already sent me her pedigree. You know, I knew the lines that she came from and everything. So it's not like it was a totally unknown thing. So, of course, they weren't willing to go to the airport to put her on a plane until I doubled the price. And then they were willing. Right. Right. So oh, he actually ended up being my first female and, you know, of course, is now behind all of my dogs.
0: Right. Okay, Ian, you had something on this and the same
3: question to you. So I do think that we live in this time in society where we don't wait for anything. Ubers come and pick us up, skip the dishes, bring us whatever food we want. We aren't limited to pizza anymore. So people don't have the patience to wait for a rare breed a lot of the time. And I think that's more of a comment on you know society than about purebred dogs. But I tell people when they want to get a rare breed of dog or any purebred dog, that it is going to take a little bit of time and it's worth it. I totally agree with what Anna was saying, though. You need to make face-to-face contact with someone if you want to get a rare breed. And this could be at a dog show or a dog event. I think it makes a much larger impression if you go meet someone face-to-face. Hi, my name is so-and-so. I'm really interested in your dog. I'll send you an email later. Then all of a sudden, Later that evening, the next day, they get an email. I'm sure they get lots of emails, but this is from someone, and you can start the email off with, we met at the show, we met at the class. I think it makes way more of an impression for all dog breeders, but especially rare dog breeders in particular. I was actually assisting a Canine Good Neighbor test at Woofstock, which is an event in Toronto, in 2016, and my booth was located next to the Dandy Dinmont Terrier Club of Canada. So I went over there and I spoke with the president who happened to be the breeder, Mike McBeth, and we really hit it off right away. And she was just so smart and funny and we got along really well. So we kept in contact for a long time until there was the right puppy for me. So I totally believe that people can get rare breeds, but you have to make a real impression on these breeders because I think they're very obviously protective of their stock. But if you make an impression as a person, I think then all of a sudden you kind of have a relationship with them and you can work with them.
0: Right. I agree. Yeah. I
3: think we all can agree on that.
0: Hang tight, guys. Got a little bit of information for you. We'll be right back to the podcast in a minute. All right, crew. Embark is really, really committed to providing a resource for responsible breeders and purebred dog enthusiasts. And we know these are tough times. And to help serve breeders right now, when we need it, starting in April, Embark is going to reduce its prices significantly through a series of sales and programs to help make the DNA testing even more accessible for everybody. So stop by, visit EmbarkVet.com backslash breeders, or hop onto their Embark for Breeders Facebook page and take a look at what they have on offer. As always, Embark's leading DNA test kits provide a comprehensive assessment of your dog's genetic health, genetic diversity, and physical traits. And I can tell you, I just got back the two Embark tests that I had done on my own dogs, and it was so cool, and I spent like half the day clicking through all the fun stuff. So stop by the Pure Dog Talk website and click the Embark logo on the homepage And take a look at what they have on offer. Ian, talk to us a little bit about, I mean, you're the dog geek kid, right? Grew up with your magazines. Talk to us about what I was talking about, your column that you wrote, because I thought it really touched something in me, someone who came from Rare Breeds and a lot of them. And I think it's really, really
3: powerful. So share that basic concept with us. I think a lot of times us millennials are kind of going back to our roots in a lot of ways, like the farm to table eating, what's old is new, what used to be called hand-me-downs is now called vintage clothing. I think a lot of people are really interested in history. And I really liked the idea of being able to help a breed that needed a hand. I feel like in a lot of times, like, and I mean, they say this in a lot of breeds, but you could go to a shelter and you can save one dog or you can buy a rare breed, an endangered species and save a whole breed of dogs, the whole history of this dog can be saved because we keep them going.
0: Yeah, that piece right there, Ian.
3: (laughs) Just the idea when you see these people like Mike McBeth, who have dedicated so much of their life. Mike is a second-generation dog breeder. Her mom, Anne, bred them before. She did. She has 60 years of experience. It's just so amazing to see how much love and passion can be put into a breed. And I just needed to make sure that these dogs, who are so fantastic, could go on for generations to come. I love that. Okay, so
0: Jenny...
2: I was going to add onto Ian's point, like being a breeder of a rare breed dog, you know, one of the things I look at when someone says, I'm really interested in the breed is, okay, are you just interested in a dog for yourself? Or are you really dedicated to the breed? And that's a question I pose to even people who are current owners of the breed is, do you only care about your dog or do you actually care about the breed? And that's what I'm really looking for when I'm placing puppies is. Are you willing to be an ambassador to the breed? Are you willing to answer every single time, oh, does the bush grow that way? I'm like, well, actually, it doesn't grow that way because we shave it. Are you willing to take that on? Are you willing to be an ambassador? That is super critical. We are looking for a rare breed to really understand it and really show that you are dedicated to the breed, not just because you want this dog that kind of fits your home and you think it's cute.
0: Well, and I think that was kind of where I was going to come to you anyway, Jenny, is exactly on that point. (laughs) Great minds, man. Because you do so much work, like this has become really your dedication, is this preservation breeding of specifically this endangered breed. And I'll make sure there's a link to Alexia's interview so that people understand how endangered this breed is. But I want you to expand on what you just said and give me three. What are your top three things that you are focused on in this goal of preserving the Laotian for the future? Wow.
2: Okay. There's a lot. (laughs) So I guess a little bit of background. You know, I was in the breed for quite a while. Kind of took a break for it and focused on doing things for the Greater Swiss Mountain Dog Club. And then when I was pulling the numbers again, because, you know, I get a little bit lazy and there's a couple of years I didn't pull the stats. And I do this for both the Greater Swiss and the Laotian Club. I pull the registration stats and I saw it plummet. I mean, when I was in the breed and when I started, we were about 150 or so registered each year. And then it dropped down drastically. It got into the 50s Wow. in 2006. Yeah, 54 right. individual puppies registered. And I'm friends with people on Facebook, but I didn't really use it to talk about dog stuff. That's when I had my personal life and my dog life separate. And now they're mm-hmm. all just kind of cobbled together. <laughs> and I really said, oh, my God, have, have y'all seen this? Like, we are at about a third of where we were when I started in the early 2000s. Right. This was a huge problem. And so then I started saying, okay, well, we've got to do something. I came up with a marketing plan, which... Everyone said, okay, that's cute. Well, you can do it. And I said, okay, (laughs) fine. I will do it.
0: Right. Yeah, be prepared to be the one that does the work that you think is a great idea. I think that's valid. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and absolutely.
2: And what I really found was I didn't need to spend my time convincing others to do things with me. When I started doing this, they started to follow. And everyone said, yes, oh, my God, you can do it. I was like, yeah, of course, you can do whatever you want, right? There's no reason why I can't start marketing the breed. And that's really how I started, you know, I've got a long-term and a short-term strategy. And really, I started with data. Okay, let's look at the data. Like right now, I'm collecting international health survey. You know, back then, I collected from all the country. Okay, let's look internationally. What is going on? And we are seeing a drastic drop internationally. It's not like there's a cluster of laochins just happily, you know, (laughs) reproducing more in the world. That's not happening anywhere. So data... Researching what I wanted to do when I was bringing in other dogs and then socializing the data, meaning, like, okay, let's start talking about this. Because while some people knew, yeah, numbers are dropping, there's not as many entries, no one really knew how bad it was. I mean, when you get to about 50 individuals in the breed mm-hmm. and about half of those enter the show ring, we have about 20 to 30% of those actually go on to contribute to the gene pool. But we have litter sizes of 2.6, it's really not sustainable long term. Right. And so that was my first plan. 2018, my next goal was, well, recruit other breeders that were established and had already shown that they were dedicated to another breed. And that's why Anna's here today.
0: Perfect. This is a good segue. <laughs> I like this.
2: <laughs> She's not the only one. You're going to see... Many more homes with Greater Swift Mountain dogs and Louchins. But, you know, just keep watching. <laughs> They're going to be there because I'm sucking these people in saying, you know what you need to go along with the big dog? You need uh, one of these little things.
0: Well, you're going to suck me in easily. I'm, I am just need... You better watch it. <laughs> I know. No, I've got two old dogs. So I can't... I'm full up. But, boy howdy yeah that's it's i'm dead serious
2: the great part about louching is there's always room for one more you just need a purse (laughs) a fairly large purse but you do need a purse
0: no they could fit with the pugs (laughs) i just probably never know the difference oh my god
2: yeah so it was recruiting greeters and then importing new bloodlines i spent 2018 just about every holiday and all my vacation days at some international airport i did a heavy push and said What bloodlines do we need from other countries that I can bring here? And, you know, it is hard to find a rare breed locally, domestically. It is really hard to find one internationally when they're like, who are you? Why did you just pop on Facebook? And I'm like, I'm not really new. I just didn't really use Facebook to talk to y'all dog people. And now I do. But I was able to bring in quite a large number of new bloodlines. And that was a goal saying, hey, In order to get us going again in the U.S., we have got to do something. We can't have just a handful of dogs that we're breeding and breeding. We've got to have something new. Right. And then I started to recruit other people in dog sports. And then I went on to actually showing my dog myself. And I had not really campaigned dogs at all. And I happened to get a really nice one. I said, you know what? We're going to go on the road. We're going to actually let judges see, hey, this is what this breed is. And because I have the data since I pulled it, in 2019, only 25% of shows even had a louch and entered. And many of those shows was just me and my special, just so that judges could say, hey, what is that thing? I'm interested right. in that thing. Why right. does it have no hair on the butt? And that's really where I ended 2019 with showing and starting to breed and getting some of these new breeders I brought in. Their bitches are coming to the age where they're about ready to start breeding as well. And then that kind of brings us to 2020. And now I'm really focusing on the global health understanding and really trying to help breeders market. Now, I did start that in the past. I started a website called Save the Lounge. And this is how you create a website. Here's the keywords. Here's how you backlink. Right. But now, really starting to push because back then I could push and all these companion homes would come and I'd say, Well, I'm sorry. There's actually no dogs available to you because they're all going
0: to breeders. Right. But we're
2: at a point now where we can say, all right, while we're going to keep the majority of the bitches, the boys, some of them can go to pet homes. We actually can start marketing this breed as a companion animal now because we might actually have some available.
0: I just love that. That's part of why I wanted you on this show is to talk about, I mean, you have such a specific and detailed plan, and I love it. And, I mean, we had, and Ian, you'll remember we had Jody Moxham on talking about Dandy Denmonts and the the very specific marketing project that she's working on for them. And so my next question is to Anna, working with the Entley Bookers, this is a breed where I've had Laotian and I've had Dandies. This is a breed I've not talked about at all. So give our listeners like the synopsis of Entley Bookers. Is this a breed that you can encourage for the general public who is a great owner Talk a bit about your breed and let's get some education out there.
1: Well, the Entley Booker is absolutely the smartest of the Swiss mountain dogs everybody knows about. So they've got brains, which makes them actually pretty simple to train, but also complicated because there's simply not a lot of room for error (laughs) because they learn things very quickly. So, with that, If you teach them the wrong thing, you will see it again. And they're going to go, but this is what you told me to do. And you're going to go, but I really didn't mean that. And they're like, (laughs) no, no, this is what you taught me to do. So you want to be careful at the beginning what you teach them to do.
0: Even by accident. Yes.
1: Even by accident. Exactly. Because they're brilliant dogs and they pick up things very, very quickly. They are an active dog, but they also can turn off. I personally love a dog with an off switch. I want Mm. to be able to do something with my dog and go have fun and go. All of these different activities and Ently Bookers can do just about everything. But I also then want them to turn off when I say, hey, I got to sit at my desk all day today. I need you to just chill. And they can or we've been busy all day, by gosh, it's nighttime, I'm turning the TV on. They're just going to be right there with you on the couch, happy as can be. Right. If you get the energy out, go play ball, go have fun, and then come back home, they're going to be perfectly fine. Nice. They're also very adaptable to many different lifestyles because really what they want is to just simply be with their owner. This is a farm dog that was bred to work with their people. And so, yes, they do a lot of livestock moving and farm chores and all of that kind of stuff, but they're not really protecting their herd. They're doing the job of keeping them in order, but they're doing what their owner wants them to do.
0: Interesting.
1: It's not necessarily a do everything on their own what they think. It's much more if you want me to do this this is what I'm going to do whatever we just want to go through life together that's the Entley Booker
0: interesting so that much people focused yeah very very people focused you know
1: nice medium-sized breed one of the things I love about the Entley Booker is you can lift them if you need to
0: (laughs) versus a Swiss Swiss, that's (laughs) a big thing yes (laughs) Oh, my gosh. But, you know, the English Booker is truly
1: a wonderful family dog, great with kids, great with people, very one-family-oriented, though. They're not necessarily a stranger's dog. Okay. So this isn't the dog that is going to go absolutely nuts when they see strangers and love everybody in sight. Right. So this is a dog that is going to be much, much more discerning than that.
0: Interesting. And they're going to go,
1: no, but you're my person. I really don't care about them. They are not in our
0: daily life. Right. They don't count.
1: They don't count. They don't exist. Right. I don't know why they're here now, but they weren't here and they're not going to be here tomorrow. So why should I care about them? Right. That's the Entley
0: Booker. And so talk to us a little bit about numbers on the Entley Booker, because again, we know Swissies, we know dandies. This is a different breed for us to educate our listeners on. Right.
1: And I will... Be very honest and say I am not the data person that Jenny is.
0: Nobody is, honey. Don't worry. Exactly. (laughs) She's pretty spectacular. (laughs) So
1: what I can tell you is that they absolutely are a very limited population breed worldwide. Okay. They are... The least popular in Switzerland as well as, you know, of the Swiss breeds as well as over here and everything. So the numbers are abysmal, basically. Wow. We do have more people getting involved at this point in time. Interestingly,
0: still not very many entering into the show ring. Okay, but you actually have people buying them, owning them, maybe breeding them, which is our goal when it comes to preserving them, Right. Right. We do have more people becoming
1: interested in the breed and definitely we still need a lot more. What we truly need in my eyes is some more truly dedicated breeders, not simply the I have one and I know Uh it's good for her to have a litter because we need to help improve the gene pool and the numbers. Uh If people come in and have one litter or two litters maybe, and that's all they do, while it's somewhat beneficial, we still don't have a true solid base of breeders. Right. We have some, we just don't have a whole lot. Okay. To me, it's still definitely a concern that we need to move forward with in our breed and work on bringing more true actual breeders in and not just simply the family that's going to have a litter of puppies and that sort right
0: well still better than nothing but like you say not better what you're looking nothing, exactly right so then education to build those maybe into future breeders still working on it absolutely
1: mm-hmm. okay i need to work on a save the entley booker thing like jenny has save the same i'm telling you thing.
0: you guys you all hook up ian tell us about the work that you're doing because i know you do a lot of work in canada Talk to us about the work you're doing there and give us some very concrete tips for promoting breeds, promoting breeding programs, promoting to the general public, because that's most of your, you know, you're more of a public facing person than the rest of us.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think that when you own a rare breed, you have a responsibility to inform everyone who's interested, whether they want to know or not about your dog, (laughs) even if they simply ask, you know, what is that and i think it's funny about owning a rare breed it's like everyone always wants to tell you when you're out on the street what kind of dog you have and they're always especially with the dandy they say things like you know that's a poodle dachshund mix or my favorite that's an irish wolfhound basset hound mix i'm all like i have no idea how that would happen but they always (laughs) like to tell you but the great thing about having a rare breed is that you have a duty to speak to the public at all times when they ask you about your dog so what I got when I bought Leroy, when I bought my Dandy Dinmont Terrier, the breeder gave me a stack of business cards. And I thought, how delightfully ridiculous this is. The business cards fold open. There's a picture of a Dandy He says, I'm a Dandy Dinmont Terrier. A little information about the breed. And then the website to the Dandy Dinmont Terrier of Canada, the club's website. And I thought, isn't this funny? What a funny stack of cards. I'll put them on my coffee table. And when friends come over for drinks, we'll have a laugh at these cards because it's so cute, right? Everywhere I go, people ask me about this dog. I've had to go back to the breeder to ask for more business cards for my dog. <laughs> it's absolutely hilarious. People ask, what kind of dog is that? A dandy what? How do you spell right. it? You know, and now right. I hand a card. I say, look it up. You'll be very interested. They love it. It's super fun. And I think the more you get out with your dog, the more activity you do with your dog. Especially yes. the rare breed. Like Jenny saying about showing and meeting the Antley Bucher in the ring. I think the more you show up with your dog at events, that's worth so much to let the public, to let the fancy see and remind them how great these rare breeds are. I have a different job than most people. I have a platform and it allows me to promote a lot of the things I'm passionate about and I'm super blessed for that. So I get to, you know, I brought my dog on the global news morning show. I talked about Dandy Dinmont on several of my radio shows. I have a following on social media. I think that like social media can be used in such a major way to promote our rare breeds. I think that even something as simple as having an Instagram account for you personally or having your dog have an Instagram account to use hashtag the way millennials shop now is through social media. So yes. if you're trying to breed a rare breed or any breed of dog, you might as well have a Facebook page and an Instagram page. And why not even a Twitter as well? Because all the doodle people are doing it and they're selling pups all the time. I right. think we need to get to millennials through social media And it's very easy to have an Instagram account to have, you know, hashtag Danny Dinmontario. If anyone asks me, where can I get a dog like this? I can easily direct them to our club or to the breeder I work with.
0: Okay, so I'm like the oldest one on this call. And I know that I'm talking to people my age and older who are listening to us. So I'm going to ask you right now, Ian, explain hashtags. Because people need to understand how to use it. Properly.
3: So what a hashtag is basically it looks like a number sign and then it right. would have the word and there's no spaces between it. So right. if you're saying Dandy Dinmont Terrier, it'd be hashtag Dandy Din Terrier, no spaces. And what a hashtag allows other people to do is to find people with similar interests or to there shop for things they're looking for. So if I go on my Instagram at any time, you can go to that little, it looks like a magnifying glass. And all you do is you can click tags or you can actually type in the number sign. You can click tags and type in Dandy Dinmont Terrier, and that will connect you to everyone else on Instagram who's talking about or posting about Dandy Dinmont Terriers. And for rare breeds, it's a fantastic way, like Jenny was saying earlier, to connect with people globally who are interested in your breed. Okay,
0: that's Absolutely. genius. Jenny, follow-up. So from follow-up, in terms
2: of social media... I actually started the media a little bit by accident because when I got my first grader Swiss Mountain Dogs, I studied psychology and I'm all into early neurological simulation, early neurological training, critical periods. I started Keep Austin Dog Friendly. It was a list of restaurants in Austin, Texas where you could take your dog and I would go take my dogs out. And I mean I still do that today for socialization, for training and all that sort of stuff. And that website got really, really big and my dogs became the face of Keep Austin awesome Dog Friendly. The website's still up now. We have an app. And I even turned one of our website events into his birthday party. And I was like, oh okay, God. who else is going to have <laughs> 1,500 people show up? I worked on social media at the time. And I totally agree with Ian. You know, I use Instagram now quite a bit. A lot of my homes actually when we get dogs from me, they create an Instagram specifically for the dog. And I'm like, oh, that's cute. I don't have to get photos via email. I get photos all the time on my phone. This is fantastic. And it has worked so well. And sometimes hashtags are for search and sometimes they're to convey something funny. So I happen to have a runt in one of my last louch in the litters. I haven't placed them yet because I actually haven't found the right person who does have a background in social media and who also has great photography skills. But we started Instagram for him and his hashtag is Tiny Lion because he was two and a half Uh ounces at birth. But, you know, people are following him now. I'm like, man, I can't place this dog unless it's with somebody who can maintain this account. You need an influencer
0: for Tiny Lion.
3: (laughs) You get the password.
2: (laughs) He is. He's so thinking cute. And my partner's like, well, can we keep... I was like, if you keep taking photos, we can keep him. But otherwise, (laughs) like, he really needs someone to make his social media account grow and really just take him place because he's an easy dog, but that's something that for the breed gets a lot of publicity. I mean, that's the type of post where my non dog show friends are like, Oh my God, that thing is so cute. Yeah. Because my show Love photos are like, oh, your dog's butt. What's up with that? You know. <laughs> they're like, oh, Mister Pringle, he's so tiny, <laughs> and he fits in our pocket. He was, yeah, he is this total Instagram thing. But oh my god, I would totally use that, and I would also caution a lot of people. I think get onto Instagram, and they think, oh, well, I'll put a photo up, and I'll get all these people calling me, and this, that, and the other. And while the platform is free, it does take a long time to understand how to use it and use it well. But once you get ramped up and you get a following, you meet some friends, it is very easy to do. A lot of times what we'll do is we'll take a whole bunch of photos at a weekend, and I'll start posting those over the course of a couple of weeks. So once you get a rhythm down and you have some photos, it's really not that hard to maintain. You know, I post photos when I'm waiting in line at the grocery
0: store and things like that. Once again, did I mention I'm the old lady here? And I'm trying really hard to be better about my Instagram, but I suck at it. So that's why I'm asking. You guys are, like, totally helping me. All right. Well, we have blown through our time limits, and I don't care because it was amazing. And I think that you guys are fabulous, and I am so excited for Rare Breeds Month at Dog Talk. And you are the perfect kickoff. So thank you, thank you, and thank you, all of you. You're fabulous.
3: Thank you, Laura. Thank
0: you. Thank you. As always, if you have any questions or input, we'd love to hear from you. The show notes and links to resources on today's topic are available at puredogtalk.com. Drop us a note in the comments or email to laura at puredogtalk.com. Remember, guys, this podcast is for you. So if you want to know something, give me a holler. We'll do a podcast for you. If you wouldn't mind, you could help me out here. Take a couple minutes to visit iTunes and give us a review.